a star so bright Pull your hat down, make sure your cinch is tight Horse is kinda snuffy, cold chill up your spine They'll get your ass moving somewhere burning Welcome to Burning Daylight, the only podcast for the working cowboy. Well, howdy, Daylight Burners. Uh, happy Monday. I hope you guys had a good weekend. Everybody that's uh, listening live, it's obviously Sunday, but I'm really excited about this episode. I've been, as you guys know, I've been, uh, <coughs> uh, per, forgive the language, sir. I've been kind of balls deep in my research on the, the meatpacking industry. And one of the books I come across in my uh, in my search was called Slaughterhouse by this this gentleman here, uh, Dominic Pasiga. Is that how you say your last name? Pasiga, yeah. Pasiga, okay. <clears throat> you Polish guys have uh, impossible names to learn when <laughs> when you're used to if yeah. you're not in the in that. I guess uh, Polish is it a Cyrillic language? No, no, it's no, a, it's not. It's, it's Latin it's, alphabet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they uh, but. That part of the world has uh, has uh, some really difficult names to pronounce, but uh, at least you're you're not all consonants, I guess. You're not you, all. you do not <laughs> so. Um, we have difficulty pronouncing your guys' names, so it's, I it's... believe it. <laughs> um, but anyway, I I read Slaughterhouse. Um, it took me a couple of weeks to get through it. I was I was you know pretty busy time, but I th- I thought you did one of the one of the best jobs um, I've come across on the meatpacking industry because there's a lot of there's a lot of strong emotions one way or the other, and uh, and you get a lot of I won't I won't say propaganda. I mean I guess propaganda has a bad connotation, obviously after World War II, but um, I guess more is a lot of muckraking done on both sides of the the meatpacking sure. dis- debate. And I, what I liked about your book is I can, I can tell from, from the brief amount that I visited with you. And then just what, what I found on your background is you're a Chicago guy and Mm -hmm. like, you're, you're just like, you're kind of like the Chicago historian. It it seems like you've got a, you've got a lot of work done um, uh, on Chicago and the way you took the union stockyards and just told the story of it and how it spawned the meatpacking industry and, uh, or the meatpacking industry kind of spawned the Union Stockyard, and uh, and just you just told the story of the stockyards itself and and the and the the neighborhoods surrounding it, and and told it in a very compelling way, and it was kind of just straight down the middle factual. There wasn't a whole lot of opinion based uh, writing in it. It seemed like I I, just, I really, but it was really well done. It wasn't it was easy reading and. I, I enjoyed it a lot, so I uh, I'm Thank really you. really glad to have you on the show. I uh, I'm looking forward to reading your other books as well. No, thank you. Yeah, I uh, you know I as a, as a, when I was 20 years old, I went to work in the stockyards. Mm-hmm. I was a livestock handler, and so um, uh, that was part of my original. And my my mother worked in the meatpacking industry, and 
So did both of my grandfathers and my grandmothers for a short period of time. But lots of my aunts and uncles also worked in meatpacking. I grew up right by the Chicago Union Stockyard. And it, so it was always a part of my life in some ways. Um, even when it uh, was in decline, uh, mm. and even now when it's gone, we still refer to the area as the Stockyards. Yeah. And that's south side of Chicago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, the Stockyard itself was between uh, Pershing Road, it's 39th Street. And it went to 47th Street and then from Halstead to Racine. So it was about a half a square mile. And then the ha- half a square mile west of it was where the meatpacking house is located. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so does that mean you're a Sox guy and not a Cubs guy? You betcha. All right. That makes me like you even more. I had a I had a college roommate, good buddy of mine um, from Barrington. And he was a... He was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. I'm a Rockies fan. So we're... Uh, most of the time we're kind of in the same boat where we're just, we just kind of suck. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had a, I had a college buddy that was a, a Sox fan and uh, boy, I mean, not a Sox fan, a Cubs fan. And he was almost unbearable. And <laughs> I, I really had no opinion on Chicago sports until I met him. And then I, <laughs> I got to where I hated everybody except the Sox <laughs> coming out of Chicago as far as sports go. Well. So, uh, but now I've out of college. I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't hear Chicago sports near as much. So I've, I've faded back to where I kind of were. I was n- no opinion, but that's funny. You're a Sox fan, so I'll have to, I'll have to let him know that I talked to a real Chicago guy for for once. Tell him we'll pray for him. Okay. <laughs> we it feels like we ought to use a, a Jim Croce song to to close out the episode, huh? Sure. I, uh, I always like uh, Jim Croce anyways, but um, so you're, you're uh, how many generations is your family in the, in the U.S.? Uh, my grandparents came from Poland just okay. before World War One. Uh, okay. And so since about, you know, my grandfather about 1905, my grandmother about 1913 on both okay. sides. Yeah. Um, is that kind of part of the, the Volga German uh migration as well or is no. that a, i i don't know the, no, the, no, the geography the, the polish uh, the polish migration was all by itself it was very large you know mm-hmm. and it, it peaked just about the time my grandmother came okay um, and uh today the polish population of chicago's uh diminishing it's they're mostly moving to the suburbs and other places but it still has a large polish population mm. And, and even in the neighborhood, there's still some Poles. Uh, mostly today, the neighborhood that I grew up in is mostly uh, his, uh, Latino and uh, and African American, but there's still some. My cousin still lives there. In fact. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, Chicago has always kind of been what you'd kind of, I guess, for the for us out in the out in the sticks, kind of a rough town. It seems like you know, it's a lot of a lot of poor immigrants uh working in factories and packing houses and uh and it's always kind of had that kind of an edge to it it seems like yeah i think that that's uh that's sort of the outside image but uh, you know it's also a big cultural center and other mm-hmm. kinds of things like that so you know and and gosh it is probably the most capitalist city in the world in in some ways i mean <laughs> yeah you, i think so if you think about the stockyard opening it opened up on christmas day 1865 I, that shocked me when I read that. So, what, what better way to celebrate Christ's birthday in, in the most capitalist city in the world than to open up a union? <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> to to open the thing that kind of drove uh and made Chicago what it was uh, yeah. and uh the the number one meat packing center in the world for dang near a, a, a century, you know. Right. Yeah. And uh it's uh you know, coming from from the producer side of the of the whole beef business, uh you know, very adversarial take towards the meat packing industry, mm-hmm. but as a as just a fan of history and uh, you know i think capitalism's great it can be you know it can go it can go dark at times uh meat packing industry is a shining example of that um can go even off today. The rails. yeah even but, today yeah. Mm-hmm. but all things considered what the what was built in in chicago like i guess it was it was already a, a main kind of vantage point for for transport being on the waterways but then then the railroad really just ignited a you know a growth like not many cities have ever seen and yeah i was sure if so the first railroad comes out of chicago 1848 that's the first one and it it chugs only out a few miles to uh, actually what's today a, a suburb of oak park and then it comes in reverse but within six years, it's the center of the railroad industry. I mean, so if you, you know, in some ways, you, if you think of it like um, today, all this uh, uh, computers and those kinds of industries are expanding. And what is it, Silicon Valley? Mm-hmm. Well, started as Silicon Valley in the 19th century, but it's railroads and it's, and then later becomes meatpacking and steel and, and, and things like that. So it really takes off. Um, you know, there's like 400 people living in Chicago about 1833 by 1893 there's a million i mean it's the fastest growing city in the history up to that point and it just takes off incredibly fast yeah it was it was in like just really incredible to to read you know as i've read through through a lot of this stuff and there was um at, at at the at one end where you get to say like the, the Upton Sinclair image where it was, um, it was, you know, almost worse, a worse place to be than where the, these poor immigrants came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that probably was the case for, for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. However, they built a thriving, um, thriving Polish community. They built a thriving uh, Irish community, um, freed black slaves moved, moved uh north to the to the factories built uh, a huge uh you know black community and like you said it's like a cultural center and um so at the same time like on 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 the far you know yay capitalism side there's uh you know there's a lot of uh you know it's it's the shining example of the american dream where these poor immigrants can come in or even even the poor, like the skilled immigrants, uh, initially, I mean, boy, they made good money. Uh, if they were skilled, uh, butchers, they, boy, you could make a lot of money. And then as the, the technology increased, uh, allowed them to, to process more animals and, uh, the, the huge cattle boom after, you know, post civil war where, where all the Texas cattle were just been left to their own, you know, to their own ends for four years. And, uh, it was just like uh, the perfect storm to uh, to show what capitalism can actually do, and right. uh, and so and of course the truth lies somewhere 
in between, or it's exactly right for some groups of people and a whole lot of overlap between there. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, look, yeah, uh, I can look at a picture and interpret it one way. You can look at a picture mm-hmm. and interpret it another way. And the truth is that most Americans used to just come together and talk about things. We often yeah. don't do that much now anymore. But I, I agree. And I, I, I think the, the best way to do it, because you find out that you have a whole lot more in common than you think. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, but when you when you look at what was able to be to to be done with, uh, I mean, there was some some really nasty shady practices that took place, and uh, that always happens within any industry, no matter if, if it's a market economy or not. Just sure. there's all there's always that happens. But they were able to to provide provide high quality meat at a at a relatively cheap price, mm-hmm. particularly compared to what what the previous. Uh, generations well, had to deal with if if you look at it from a certain point of view in in the 1890s it took a skilled butcher and his uh assistant to uh, uh to slaughter a, a a steer and cut it up into beeves and so forth and distribute mm-hmm. it uh, somewhere between eight to twelve hours yep at armor and company it took 36 minutes mm-hmm. so and, and, and with hogs it took about six to eight hours but at Armour and Company, it took 24 minutes mm-hmm. and would be for sheep. So yeah. suddenly there was this production of meat. Now, for better or for worse, depending on how you feel about how much meat we should all eat every day. Yeah, uh, exactly. There, there is this I, all of it you want, I, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's it, it really changes the whole system. So a lot mm-hmm. of these people are coming into Chicago. Uh, you know, they're coming out of rural areas. Uh, they know... They've killed steers. They've killed, you know, grandma takes a chicken, mm-hmm. makes soup, right? Everybody knew how to do this kind of stuff. But at Chicago, it was so mechanized, so industrialized, that it became sort of like a slap in the face. Yeah. Uh, it became an awakening, an epiphany. So it became a big tourist uh, uh, attraction. 500,000 people a year at the turn of the 19th to 20th century came to visit the stockyards and to see the slaughter. Even as late as the early 1950s, uh, busloads of uh, of kids would come at the age of 9, 10 years old to see them slaughtering hogs. And believe me, that left a (laughs) tremendous mark on their psyche. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I mean, most kids think that, you know, meat comes to the grocery market in uh, in plastic right from God. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. there's... We have no connection anymore. Most urban people have no connection with that anymore, you know. Um, yeah. Well, most did in the 19th century. Yeah, that's uh, and that's one of the biggest thing that that drives a lot of this division that we see in our country is is a lot of it has to deal with not so much just food, but just like the the complete separation of how two two different types of people live, and it comes from my side as well, you know, like where. Like we, a lot of people think the cities and they think just like a a bunch of screaming radical lefties, you know, all the time, but no, mostly it's a lot of working people that just work a different job. And, uh, and, and there's so, but yeah, I think like the, that's, that's also one of the kind of the drawbacks of this, this huge centralization of the packing industry is it gets a little, and, and especially now that, that everything's closed off. Um, like it's, it's pretty tough to just get a tour of a, of a packing plant anymore, unless you are with a, some sort of group, because 
of the liability behind it, you know, from, yeah. from so many lawsuits and stuff. Whereas, and, you know, and people demonstrate, right. I mean, because mm-hmm. and other groups like that, that are worried about animal um, rights, et cetera, justifiably. But, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, there are some packing houses actually, I just read not long ago that have opened up to tours up in Minnesota, uh, which is, I think of, that's great. Yeah. I think people should know what's going on, you know? And mm-hmm. the thing is, so I didn't, you know, I worked, when I worked for the Union Stockyard Company, I was outside. I was a livestock handler outside. I never saw a kill. We, yeah. you know, they didn't kill. We, we took animals off trucks we, or trains and we put them back on trucks and trains and they went someplace else to be killed. Mm-hmm. So I never saw a slaughter until I was writing my book, Slaughterhouse. Um, and I called up a friend whose uh, family owned a, a, one of the last meatpacking houses in Chicago. Mm-hmm. want to see it come on down and see it so i was you know a little leery you know because i had never seen this before um but i went and uh it was a sheep slaughterhouse and from the moment the sheep were pulled uh, uh shackled at the, as they came in and went up in the air and yeah. cut their throat it happened so fast that after about two minutes you just realize it's a job yep it's just a job yep and uh, and so I I followed the, the sheep all the way through to the cooler. Um, I, I must tell you, when I came home, my dog was happy to see me because I, had, oh, I bet so. I had been standing in blood for a half hour, forty minutes. You know? But oh uh, yeah. But uh, outside of that, it was it was just a, it was it just turned up being a job. Now you know, my mother worked in the canning department. My grandfather was uh, worked on the slaughterhouse floors. Um, they they worked all over the uh, the area, and um, at the time, you know, when I give, I, I run a little place called the Packing Town Museum, and mm. it, it's in an old packing house in in the stockyards. It's still there. Uh, they don't. It's no longer a packing house. It's a it's a food industry incubator. They small businesses, uh, but we have the little museum in there. And uh, whenever people past a certain age. You know, a little bit older people come in. The the one thing they remember is the smell, mm-hmm. because there's this kind of overpowering stench that that came out of the meatpacking industry. Not necessarily out of the stockyard, but out of the meatpacking industry. And yeah, you know, yeah, with all the the blood and the awful and, and yeah, and it just it's... turning fertilizer plants were there too. You know, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that's the one thing they they mostly remember. Uh, and uh, my my memory of it was, of course, very different because I was on, you know, in the pens working with the animals. Yeah. Uh, so that, was that all done on foot? Um, yeah. Uh, oh. s- some guys had horses. Uh, I <laughs> I'm a city boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good on a horse. Several times in the stockyards, I think horses tried to kill me. <laughs> but, That's funny. So basically, so the first night I worked there, I, I they put me in a hog house, and uh, that was a, a an interesting experience. And then later they moved me to the cattle alleys, and okay, uh, and uh, but I uh, at one point we unloaded the most livestock I ever saw. You know the the runs at Chicago used to run into tens of thousands. Of, oh, you know, I bet. Yeah, you know, one time one hundred twenty thousand hogs in one day. And uh, so I think the, the the run on the top run on cattle was almost forty thousand in one night. They would come in. Oh, that's a lot of cows. That's a lot of cattle. Yeah, and so um, I uh, I think the most I've ever seen in a night. I used to work at a 
at a huge uh, feedlot in, in mm -hmm. western Kansas. It was, a, it was about 120,000 head capacity, but we'd get the big runs of cattle coming off the Flint Hills of Kansas. And um, I think I, I unloaded 42 trucks by myself one, one Sunday. Wow. But, right. And so that, for one place, that's a... Uh, that's a lot. You know, that, that's that's a lot. But then, uh, yeah, the, I mean, that's that's like a fraction of what the stockyards were, were doing every single right. day. And it was... Uh, it's an incredible, like a lot of trial and error, a lot of, a lot of butt in the heads and a lot of, sure. you know, threatening to, to take my ball and go home, uh, by, by, you know, the, the packing industry. And, yeah. and eventually they, they, they kind of did finally pull the, pull the football out from under Chicago. And, uh, it's, uh, and so like it all, and it all happened in the course of what was it, 106 years from open to start. Yep. Yeah. About 106 years. Now, after we closed, there were still some packing houses, you know, they, they bought yeah. directly from farmers, producers, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, most of them are gone. There's only one left, I believe. Hmm. That's a hog uh, slaughterhouse uh, still in the state. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody else is gone. That's crazy. Um, now and you said your your grand granddad used to work in in the building where your museum. Yeah, he ended his career. My my mother's father ended his career in the building uh, the, where my museum is, and in fact, he got hurt there. And uh, oh, okay, he died shortly after. So uh, yeah, huh? So his his pictures on the wall now. That's kind of revenge. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's uh that's amazing though. That's uh. It it makes sense why why you're such a Chicago guy. I mean, you got you got some really deep roots there at this point. Yeah, I've been here. It seems like uh, yeah, our family's been here. Well, you know, over a hundred years, but uh, which is actually kind of long for Chicago because people come and go constantly. You yeah. Know? But um, we were in that neighborhood for three generations. You know, in fact, uh, I'm in that neighborhood still periodically because I, I only live about five miles away. But but I'm work there at the at the museum. You know. Yeah. That's amazing. And uh so so when the when the, the stockyards closed down and then you said you stayed on for a little bit afterwards while mm -hmm. they were doing some demolition and stuff. And then um but were you in I guess you would have been in college probably when when this right. was all Yeah. So cuz I I was listening to um another podcast that you had done um and you were you were talking about how you had a you know, education deferment for the, for the Vietnam war. And that was, uh, I, I that had to have been some really contentious times there in, in Chicago at that, that point in time. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, uh, of course the stockyard was located right behind the international amphitheater where the democratic convention had been in 19. Oh yeah. You know, um, and, uh, it was kind of contentious. Uh, uh, you know, there was, you know, we uh, uh, people were on edge about civil rights, about uh, the war, about mm. uh, all kinds of things. You know, um, and uh, growing up at that time period it was uh, it was an education in itself. You know, and I would I went to the University of Illinois at Chicago, which wasn't a very radical campus, but it got closed down during the Cambodian invasion. Mm. Um, and at that time, I was working nights in the stockyards. I so I, I originally worked uh, the shift from like 5.30 till 1.30 in the morning. Uh, but then uh, I left for a while, and then I came back, and then I worked a, a 2 to 10 shift, which made it possible for me to go to school, you know. Um, yeah. 
and the, and the and the, the, the stockyard was only a short bus ride from the university, so it wasn't it wasn't hard at all. All right. I, now, did they did they have a lot of turnover in employment there? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I would imagine so. That especially seems in, to me like that to be a lot like a like a dairy, you know, like a modern day dairy farm or a feedlot or something, where just like continual employee turnover. Yeah, because they, you know, I mean, the pay was not stellar, right? It was, yeah. you know, uh, minimal. Um, and also, uh, the people who worked in the packing houses that changed. They, they, at one time in the nineteen twenties. Uh, Armour and Company had employed, they employed 8,000 people in Chicago at their plant. Uh, and they actually had to hire 8,000 people that year. Now, that didn't mean everybody left. Yeah. But some jobs, the guy would come in two days and say, I'm out of here. This is crazy. Mm -hmm. Because, you, you know, where you were introduced uh, largely as, uh, if you were if you were new, and these are all unskilled. Uh, they're not skilled butchers, right? So they're coming yeah. in. And uh, the first job you get is a squeegee man. Squeegee man just stands 10 to 12 hours a day pushing blood into a gutter mm -hmm. you know, and, and you know and the guys doing this for 10 to 12 hours he might go home and say you know i'm not going back you know uh, oh, or, yeah. they would, or they would shackle the hind the, the guys had to shackle the hind legs of animals mm. uh, you know hogs are smart they try to bite they try to get you you know they're they know what's going on cattle yeah. are not that not quite that way uh but um and, and by the way, cattle are knocked out before they're shackled. So yeah, uh, it was. Uh, but those were tough jobs, and all the jobs were pretty hard, you know, um, at the time. And the conditions that they worked under were not always great. I mean, you know, so uh, yeah, there was a lot of turnover in the meatpacking industry, and there still is. You know, I mean, even today mm. we're talking about kids working in meatpacking that there's been a, a an issue about. You know, yeah, that's been popping up a lot here lately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I I did an internship uh, for Beef Products International when I was in uh, my senior year of college, and it and they were the the company out of Sioux Falls that uh, um, made the pink slime, you know, the lean, finely textured beef, and mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was uh, it was a shock for me. I, the biggest thing is uh, you had forty five minutes of sunshine every day. You know, mm -hmm. you had a fifteen minute break and a, and a thirty minute lunch, and that was everything else was inside, and it was cold and and uh, wet, and you know, it just all of it just kind of it's not a fun job, really. I mean, yeah. I, I guess there are probably some people that liked it, and I was no, you know, nowhere near the kill floor or anything, but it just, yeah, it, it's so mechanized and automated, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's wild. It's yeah. See, I, I, I like working there, but I worked outside, mm -hmm. and that was different. You know, I worked yeah. with the animals outside. We unloaded trucks and trains and loaded trucks and trains, and that was about, yeah. you know, so that was very different uh, than what my grandparents did or my mother. Mm. Yeah, and so what 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 did your, your grandfather, what did he start out as? Uh, he was an unskilled worker. He became, a, after a while, a meat inspector. And then uh, after he hit his 50s, they laid, laid him off, and he went back to working as a maintenance man. Uh, huh. But uh, so, you know, uh, remember at the time, um, there weren't a lot of uh, uh, protection for workers. And so, you know, you, you were sort of at the whim of who, who you worked for. Uh, yeah, so he, he – uh, they – but they were always fortunate. They always during the. My other grandfather was actually a steam fitter at Armour, so he had a he had a skill. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, uh, 
you know, they were of both both sides of the family were lucky in that during the depression they were never laid off because oh okay they they kept kept slaughtering and they 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 worked in a in, in, in on the floors you know yeah I uh that that's kind of one thing about working in uh you know in agriculture is it's not necessarily recession proof but it's pretty it's pretty close to it. You know, like mm-hmm. there's always a job in agriculture in particular, if you've got some sort of skilled job, but sure. it's, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I guess what, what is your kind of like overall view of the, of how the, you know, the stockyards rose up and the packing industry with it and, uh, and how it like kind of, you know, got to like the apex of what, of what American capitalism is and then kind of the, the well, I guess it was a, a gradual at first and then eventually just like it, it was gone, huh? Yeah. Well, what happened actually was, uh, so in 1921, 22, there are in, in, in those two years, this union stockyard receives over 18 million head of livestock each year. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of livestock, a lot and, of livestock. And uh, you know, it's also the largest horse market in the country as well. Now, these are not horses to slaughter, of course. These are working horses, you know, or, yeah. or race horses. Um, so there's a lot of activity. It's it, That's sort of the peak. Uh, World War One is sort of the peak in, this, in the immediate aftermath. Let's say 1920 to 22 or so. And then you start seeing it go down. Now, why do you see it going down? Because there's they're, they're changing. Meatpacking houses are, are looking for a different way to buy animals. Okay. So on the livestock market, they would find 200 buyers in a, in a day. It's sort of like mm. they, they would go from pen to pen and bid. And uh, if you were to, the commission man, let's say you had sent 100 cattle in and I was your commission man. Well, I had something in my mind about what I wanted to sell them for, what I could for that day. Mm. And some guy came in and said, no, I'll give you so-and-so much, which is too little. I'd say no. And the next yep. guy would come in and they would bid and bid and bid until I sold them. Or I'd hold them over for the next day. Mm-hmm. When I thought I could, you know, so sort of like a uh, Wall Street. It was the Wall Street of livestock in many Yeah. But what happens in the twenties now is, and even a little bit before, our meatpacking houses are now going down to farmers, going down to producers, and they're saying, "Look, here's the deal. You send your cattle to Chicago, they get ten percent because they get a commission, they charge it for a you know, pen, they charge it for feed, they charge it for water, they charge it for everything. But, you know, I'm your buddy. I'm your, I'm the meatpacker. I'm your buddy. I'm going to buy it to, for you. I'll pay you what you'd get at Chicago, and you don't have all that hassle. You don't have to pay for anything. So you're a producer. You say, wow, that saves me 10% or so, somewhere between 10 and 15% maybe. And mm-hmm. I don't, you know, often these, these guys would go with their livestock into Chicago, so that's costly too. That was a night out on the town, and there were plenty of places yep. to entertain around the stockyards. <laughs> but uh, there were a lot, actually. But, uh, you know, uh, it, it was a hassle. And they said, okay, so you'll just send a truck down here and pick up the livestock. Right. Don't worry about it. And they would do that. Well, they did that until they finally wore the stockyard down and it closed. And then you didn't have a market. Mm-hmm. And... And really, I think I my personal feeling is that the the loss of central markets, not just Chicago, but Omaha, Kansas City, uh, East St. Louis, South St. Paul, mm-hmm. meant the end of family farms in the Midwest to a large extent because they could just, you know. So Smithfield runs its own industrial farms, you know, yep. 
they kill 150,000 hogs a day. They, they, they have their own industrial farms. A lot of these big peckers have their own industrial farms. They don't, they don't go to Farmer Jones and say, do you have 25 cattle I can purchase? They simply say, you're out of business. Mm -hmm. And we'll take your land and we'll turn it into an industrial farm. So we have a problem here in Illinois with these huge industrial hog farms. I mean, you've got just incredible stench because yep. there are tens of thousands of hogs under under roofs, you know, uh, and uh, and they've replaced hundreds of little farms yep. that, that once were sort of the backbone of Illinois and backbone of the country, frankly. And yep. uh, I, I think family farms really hurt by this. But, you know, if, if I was a farmer in 1950 and somebody came to me, you don't have to send it to the Chicago Stockyards. I'll send a truck to pick it up and I'll, you'll make the same. I'd probably say, sure, that's a good idea. Yeah. You know, you don't think about the future. You don't think about the unintended consequences. Not that the well, stockyards, not that the stockyards were were saints and they, they they that people didn't get screwed anyway. You know, but yeah, but but still, there was something there that that protected. Well, and it it uh it helped lead to the kind of the decline in the understanding between urban and rural as well, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because uh, you know that like you said, those nights on the town, you might get in a fight. You also might make a really good buddy mm -hmm. and. Uh, all of a sudden, you got people from Chicago going out to see their buddy in in the country, and and, and that a lot of that's gone now. And you remember from 1900 on uh, till 1975, there was the International Livestock Exposition was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. It would draw hundreds of thousands of people, city folk primarily. Mm -hmm. um, it even made local television. They would have local television programs about it. It was a yeah. big, big thing. Um, and people got to interact with other people, as you say, a little bit more. You know, I mean, part of the problem is, you know, even you know, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a geezer. I'm an old guy now, right? I, I sit back and I think, you know, people date online, people talk <laughs> online. They don't meet for a beer on the corner anymore, right? Uh, yeah. It, it be so we've become atomized to an extent. And I think that that you know, my book is called How to the Chicago Stockyards in the World It Made. Um, and and I still think that the industry is kind of is is sort of symbolic of how the world has has moved on. I I don't think you're wrong on that at all. I I think um, you know it's kind of it's always you know harken back to the good old days, but there there is something just missing because like the oh, I was I was I was I was talking to a with a fella from New York as a horse trainer and. And he talks about all these, uh, like these black cowboy clubs throughout urban areas where, you know, so, so, so and so's great grandfather came from the South to, you know, New York or wherever to LA to, to get a job. And, uh, and he was a cowboy back then, but he went to go work at a, at a factory, but he, he kept that tradition alive. And, and it's kind of the same. I mean, you have all these little, these immigrant communities throughout throughout the cities and then when all that gets intermingled with uh like a place like stockyards and you get you know all these all these ranchers and farmers coming from from the country like there's something really beautiful about that and it and it uh it was part of the it was one of the big reasons that kind of helped intermingle like the the west and the, and the east it was like chicago was the terminus for all that yeah yeah i think that that's true and I, you know remember the railroads Railroads connected both coasts in 1869. Mm -hmm. So that made, and Chicago was in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to go from Chicago, from New York to Sacramento, California, 
you had to stop in Chicago because that was the terminal. It's mm-hmm. and you had to get off the train. You had to spend the night, right? Probably at the Palmer House or someplace like that, and then get on another train in the morning and head out towards California. So we always we say we always got our ten percent one way or the other. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and, but but it's true. This became sort of the you know the the nexus where people just sort of met each other and spread around throughout the country. Um, and you know one of the fascinating things about places like Chicago and New York and, and other big cities is this intermingling of people. But in Chicago, I, I think the sort of rural urban mix was 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 very important because this was. And in some ways, still is a major food producer. I mm. mean, we still have we have we have uh, various packing houses here. They don't slaughter; they're not slaughterhouses, but they're packing houses. They buy, mm. you know, beeves from Iowa or Wyoming or wherever, and they're brought in on trucks, and then they cut them up here and they distribute them. Um, and in the stockyard today, um, it, it's now called the Chicago Stockyard Industrial Park. And it is the most successful industrial park in the city. There's 15,000 people working in the stockyards today. Um, not all of them in the meat industry or even in the food industry, but they're there. Um, and uh, and there are, for instance, one of the big uh, companies that uh, produces, I forget its name now, uh, produces uh, meat for McDonald's, right, is in the mm-hmm. stockyards. Uh, there's various others. And th- there's now a couple of businesses that, um, uh, this is this is totally against what we're talking about here, but they grow meat in jars and stuff for <laughs> petri dishes. Uh, they're located there, um, and so there's a tremendous, still a tremendous amount of industry in the area. But that old intermingling between urban and rural has disappeared, basically. Yeah, that it's um, it's it's kind of crazy how how it all. Uh, what what are your thoughts on that that uh, lab grown meat stuff? Uh, what, what do you think about that? I've I've tasted it. It's okay. It's not beef. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like beef and I like yeah. pork and I like lamb and I you know yeah um, I'm a I guess I'm a carnivore. <laughs> I, I'm I'm the same way. I you know I'm I'm I raise beef and I that I think the perfect cut of meat. That God put on this earth is is a beef ribeye. Sure, I, I I don't think there's anything. I mean, I've got a brisket on the on the smoker right now, and and but I I I, I love lamb. I love good pork. I mean, sure. and I I don't know, like I don't know. Maybe that's the like the quest of humans. They're always trying to kind of play God, and I think you can you can try to make meat, but like yeah, but meat comes from an animal, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's probably true. I mean, you know, look, there's, uh, there's room for it all, I guess, you know, yeah. but, uh, um, you know, the, these are, these are, these are companies are, uh, are, are producing these products now. And I have to tell you, I, I ate chicken that tasted like chicken, but it wasn't chicken. It did taste like chicken, but it wasn't chicken, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, you can do a lot of things. Um, and and in fact, in the in the building that uh, my little museum is in, and by the way, it was voted the, the best tiny museum to learn Chicago history in the city. That's <laughs> all. I I can't wait to go see that. I'm. Well, uh, when you come up here. You let me know. I'll I'll meet you and I'll show you around and I'll show you around the neighborhood. I'm uh I'm I'm gonna hold you to that because I, I that like that I've been 
I've never the only time I've spent in Chicago was twelve hours at O'Hare in a <laughs> during a blizzard, you know. Yeah. And uh so I I didn't have a great experience there, but it wasn't bad. I mean, when I finally got a connecting flight, I just went to the bar and we we took bets on whether our plane was gonna be delayed or not. Yeah. <laughs> and uh um you know but it's um yeah, so I, I, now now that you put that uh, that on the table, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take you up on it. I've I've always wanted to go. We'll go see a Sox game. Sure, absolutely. You know when I when the stockyard closed, um, I uh, traveled around the Midwest. I went to Omaha. See, mm-hmm. it was still operating as a stockyard, but it was in very quickly going to close. Visited a couple of stockyards in Iowa, Sioux Falls. Um, and ended up in Yankton, South Dakota, visiting uh, there too, and because um, my father had a an army reunion up there, so we drove. Oh, okay. And 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 Yankton actually had two small stockyards, uh, so I went to both of them. <laughs> um, it, it was interesting, and uh, you realize how big an industry it really was, and and and, and is, but it's always been dominated by three or four big, big mm-hmm. companies, and it still is today. You know, yep. they're not they're not names that you know, everybody knows like Armour, Swift, Wilson, you know, those are names that are sort of embedded in our, in our especially in Chicago, in the back of our minds because their families are still here and still have a lot of money. But, um, uh, but uh, you know, so you got like Iowa beef and, and so forth and the place you mentioned earlier. Um, yeah. That, that, and some of them are just, you know, S and G or something like that, you know, and, uh, and it, yeah, it's JBS is, is maybe. that was who they bought Swift and then, yeah, Tyson bought IBP Iowa Beef, and then what's the other? It's Car Cargill and Marfrig. Marfrig uh, is uh, National Beef Beef Packing, but yeah, JBS and Marfrig are Brazilian owned, and you know, Smithfield is owned by the Chinese. Yeah, it's uh, it is you know, and I'm I'm a very patriotic American. I I I come from immigrants. You know, I'm half Mexican, um, but I'm like old school like generations my my last census record i could find was 1870 in herefano colorado so it was my my ancestors probably from the old conquistadors and and settled in in you know uh what was what was old spain or mexico back then Mm -hmm. generations but I, i i work with almost exclusively mexican guys uh all all immigrants and um you know i and that's part of like, like lower lower class people that you know the you know immigrants and lower class, you know native folk, uh, born people like. You get to know each other when you work in these kind of mm-hmm. what other people would, you know kind of see as shitty jobs, and you build a, a camaraderie with people like that. If you took the stockyard, and you put it in the middle of a circle, mm-hmm. in nineteen. 19- 25 and that circle had a diameter of about three miles you could count 35 catholic churches in orbit around the stockyards really every wave of immigrant that came in had their own parish and so forth now if you add on to that the protestant churches and several synagogues you could really see the mix of people in that community Mm -hmm. i mean it was just amazing i mean when I was growing up as a boy, I could swear in five different languages. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, Spanish, Polish, Lithuanian, German. <laughs> that's and, that's and crazy. 
and eventually Yiddish too. Uh, so because it was just so many people um, and yet you worked with and, you know, they would say something. I said, what does that mean? And they'd tell me, yeah. and I'd say it too. And before you know it, we were all swearing at each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, as where a lot of the, you know, like the off color humor that, uh, you know, that, that, that made comedy so great came from just straight out of just like working guys talking sure. shit to each other. And, and and it's and now nowadays it's it's considered racist. A lot of it was back in the day, but um, I don't know. There's just there was there was something about just that that uh the act of just talking shit to each other is is just something that guys do, and yeah. uh, and and it and it builds. I don't know. It builds uh builds thick skin and it builds good character, and you you make good friends when you can uh yeah when you can talk shit to each other in different languages. Well, I I certainly enjoyed uh. So I not you know I not only worked in the stockyard but I worked in various factories and then so one thing about growing up in the in the sixties in Chicago was every summer uh, in any factory anywhere and I was in a very industrial part of town people go off on vacation mm-hmm. so there were jobs so I could get a job and I could work either on a on a on a, on a line making something or work in a stockyard or whatever I worked in a steel mill. Uh, but I always had a job, you know, um, and when I, I was teaching, I, I, I retired from teaching about five, six years ago. Uh, I would ask my students what kind of jobs do they have? Did, you know, where do they work? None of them even knew what an assembly line was. Hmm. None of them had seen it. None of them had that kind of experience because that had all passed away to a large extent. Huh. You know, I mean, uh, well, the steel mill I worked in is about to become an Amazon distribution center. Um, and, uh, you know, there there were 50,000 steel jobs in the city at one point. They're all gone. Just about all, uh, all, just about all the meatpacking jobs are, well, at least the slaughterhouse jobs are all gone. Um, this was once the candy manufacturing center of the world. There's just a handful of candy producers now. Huh? The one thing that's coming back is breweries. There's a lot of breweries. (laughs) (laughs) That that's one thing I don't know if will ever change is Americans do like to drink because every they're from cultures of all around the world and they all like to drink. Absolutely, and absolutely. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's 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 pretty pretty crazy. Um so you you went uh you finished school, you got your PhD. Did you go right into teaching after I was I was lucky. I did uh even when I before I uh graduated with my doctorate uh i was teaching part-time uh in various places my first teaching job was actually teaching um uh ged classes general education classes kids who dropped out of high school to actually do mm-hmm. gang kids uh in chicago um and uh and i was lucky then just before i got my phd day I, I got this job at columbia college in chicago and i, I stayed there for 38 years something like that and uh, so, yeah, uh, I, w- I was among the lucky because a lot of the teaching jobs at, at the university level are gone now. They're, you know. Yeah. That's uh, so it's changing. Yeah. What were the main kind of uh, concentrations that you were teaching uh, as a professor? I did history of American City, history of Chicago, history of American working class. I did uh, for 22 years. Me and a buddy of mine co-taught a class on the Vietnam War, mm. and we and I taught classes on the 1960s. 
uh, and in some general U.S. history courses as well. Okay. Um, I, I got to ask, uh, during during the, the Vietnam War, did you – what was that like being like a guy on deferral or deferment? Um, like, how, how, how was the – because I kind of feel like we're we're almost at that point right now with this Ukraine situation where if uh, if something really like we really get involved in a in a major way, you know, there's I don't see us fighting against Russia without some sort of mobilization and draft. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, the draft was just a reality of life uh, uh, from 1940, basically, until 19, what, 73 or something like that. Mm hmm. Uh, there had always been this this sort of draft. So I grew up, and you know, every when I was in college, many of my friends were already uh, in the army or in Vietnam because um, I grew up in a working class community, and you know, uh, those are the guys who went uh, yep. for the most part. And in fact, uh, oh, two of my best friends uh, were there. Uh, three of them uh, were there at the time, uh, and. Uh, one of them lives about 90 feet away from me now, and he was best man at my wedding. I was best man at his wedding, but he he had stepped on a booby trap. And I was working in the stockyards, and his, grand, his father called me. I was uh, in, in the stone gate. The stone gate was this ornamental gate that you entered into the stockyards through. And mm. we had our offices there for security guards, you know. Yeah. And they called me and they said, hey, there's a telephone call for you. So I went and talked to him. And he said well, that my buddy was coming home. And uh, and I said, well, he's not due to come home for another eight months. He says, well, you know, stepped on a booby trap. Uh, and uh, so that was that was the beginning of him coming home. But at least he was alive and, and he did well uh, over time. He became a Chicago policeman, so he's okay. But he, both of his ankles were messed up for a while. But a lot of the guys that I knew had, had gone to Vietnam. And, and, and it was, you know, I, I thought about it. I thought about upping, you know, myself. At one point or another, but by the time, uh, by 1969, 1970, it just seemed like it was a a desperate situation. I it would be very difficult to reinstate a draft. Uh, I think it would be too, but I I also I think all over the country would start screaming and voting against it. You know, and that that would be that would be good too. But I I I I I'm I'm very much. I think we should back away from that deal as you know as much as we can. Uh, but I just I, I think when you, when you look at his throughout history and and the size of the the Russian army, I don't see how if we were to get actually involved without without some sort of mobilization. Yeah, I think. Well, I think if there's something that big, but I don't think it'll ever get to that. I hope not. I uh, Vietnam, I hope not. At at at, at its peak, there were five hundred thousand U.S. troops in Vietnam. Mm. Uh, that's a lot of troops. Uh, a lot. But it's 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 not compared to World War Two, you no. know, uh, or World War One. So, you know, um, well, we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah, I uh, I hope I hope that's not the case. I hope something something comes comes up. There's some sort of negotiation um, before it ever comes to that. But anyway, I just uh, I I I would just I'm just curious as how you know. Because, like you said, being a working class uh, community, that's those that's who went over there. My my biological dad was did uh, two or three tours over there, and mm -hmm. it was uh, 
it, it was uh it was a interesting time in in this uh in this country's history and yeah and a very divisive time yeah as you know yeah. in some ways we're going through that too here uh domestically yep. right now you know yeah i think so too and i i i i guess i just you know as much stuff that i that i read on on history i mean you know reading some reading your book and others like it there's just it seems like there's just waves throughout throughout the u.s history just like there's this people are at each other's throats and then they kind of get along and then they're at each other's throats and then they kind of get along and and when everybody's getting along man we do really really good shit well we do and uh and and when we don't get along we do really bad shit (laughs) yeah that's exactly right and yeah so there was this little thing called the civil war Mm -hmm. which was the the most disastrous war in our history really yeah yeah it really was i mean it, it it was it was awful you know it's uh like all all around awful was it fought for the right reasons probably yes uh but it's a not it's not nearly as uh as simple as as a simple you know slavery and non-slavery issue it was uh no, there were other issues as well yeah. yeah yeah and uh and it was just yeah it was awful and i i hope to never see anything even close to that ever again and uh so it's you always look at that and you're like yeah it could could be worse mm-hmm. and uh yeah so but i, I think i think having conversations of is is that that helps just about more than anything is is getting people talking to each other, not yeah. talking at each other. I think that's really important, and I think uh, often we just talk at each other these days. Mm-hmm. And it's it's important to listen to what the other guy's got to say, and you yep. can disagree, but you might also agree with ninety percent of what he's saying. Right, and, right, or it might say something where that you've never thought of it in that that exactly. way before, and exactly. and it's uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I think it's important. Um, Going back to so you you started teaching and how how like how long were you a professor before you started writing books? Uh, oh, I actually wrote my first book before I had my doctorate. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, and uh, so it's always been a part of my life. I I just finished a book, um, a manuscript that I'm handing in tomorrow. So oh, okay, uh, so I'm happy about that. Uh, it'll be if it's published, and I'm sure it will be. I've got a contract. It's uh, um, uh, it'll be my ninth book. And, okay. And I've got you know, shoot, probably twenty, twenty-five articles, book reviews, things like that. I've been pretty active. Um, you know, I, I I like what I'm doing, and so I retired from the classroom six six years ago. It'll be six years May thirtieth. Um, and uh, but I I keep lecturing. I work at museum. I've got a new exhibit opening up at the Chicago History Museum on May 20th that I worked on on Polish Chicago. Uh, I've got various projects. And uh, and uh, and my latest project is I just became a grandfather. So, <laughs> Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you, yeah. Little boy. That's great. Yeah, my first, our first. And That's great. Uh, yeah, he's a cute kid. Unfortunately, he lives in Massachusetts, so he's a bit of a... Oh. <laughs> uh, we, we go back and forth. Uh, they come here, so it's um, it's 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 been a fulfilling life. I'm, I I enjoy it. It's just that um, I mean I think education has changed. Higher education, especially, has changed quite a bit in the last ten years or so. Um, 
I knew I had, I knew it was time for me to get out of the classroom when they no longer understood my jokes because my um, joke, my jokes were all about Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne and they, had no <laughs> idea who they were and I had no idea who the hell they were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> See, I I graduated uh, college in two thousand nine, and it's it's a completely different world. I've I haven't been back to I went to Colorado State University and mm -hmm. I uh, I haven't been back in several years and. It's uh, yeah, it's a whole different different world from when I went there, and I I don't recognize it much. Yeah, and you know it's become um, uh, the funding. So when I was an undergraduate student at U of I, uh, seventy-seven, maybe eighty percent of the budget was covered by either the state or the federal government. Mm -hmm. Today it's seventeen percent. So that means tuition goes up. Yep. Um, I mean, somebody's got to pay for it, and you know, university professors and staff, and everybody wants a computer, and mm -hmm. you want, you know, I, I can't believe these dorms that have you know big screen television sets in the bedrooms and workout oh. rooms and all this other kind of stuff. Which you know, to me, a dorm was you lived like a monk, right? There was these <laughs> two, two guys in a room, and uh, you know, of course, I, I lived at home. I didn't have to live in a in a, in a dorm, but. Um, I was at a commuter college, but um, so things have changed and, and the funding has not followed, you know, so it's, it's, it makes it difficult. And, um, and so you raise tuition, you raise tuition and kids take these debts on these, I, I mean, the crushing debts. I mean, I, I, when I was going to U of I, I paid probably for a year and, you know, uh, tuition, $400. Really? I, I could make $400 in the stockyards over the summer. Easy. Oh yeah, and I could still have money for books, and by the way, beer. So yeah, there was, there was you know, it, but but you know now you got these kids graduating, you know, and eighty thousand dollars worth of debt, hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. They can't buy a house. They can't you know. They're they're caught. Yeah, and uh, and uh, and I think partially the uh, I'll tell you personally I feel that that's the problem of our gender my generation. Mm. You're younger than me, so not your generation, but my generation. We just dropped the ball. We didn't fund colleges the way they were funded. We stepped back. We became yeah. became greedy. I don't want to pay those taxes. I don't need to pay those taxes. You know. Yeah. And uh, and I think that uh, that's caused a, a problem uh, across the board for the country as a whole. Um, because look, not every kid should go to college. Absolutely not. Some, no. I had a kid come into my class. I, I, I'll never forget this. He came into my office, and he closed the door, and he started crying. Young man, about 20, 21. I says, what's wrong? He says, I don't want to be here. He was not doing well in my class, obviously. Yeah. And I says, well, don't be here then. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're 21. <laughs> you can do what you want. He says, no, my mother wants me to be here. I says, well, your mother wants you to be here? I mean, he wanted to be a mechanic. He was good with cars. So go be good with cars. Yeah. You know, I, now I was not going to call his mother up and tell him that. But I says, you're, you're 21. Do what you want to do. When I was 21, I did what I wanted to do. You know, you know yeah. and at 18, you can do what you want to do. You know, um, not everybody, I'm sure, the, I'm sure the parent who did this felt she was doing it for his mm. best, in, best of intentions. But he was so unhappy. And, yeah. he was, and he was at an art school. He wasn't even, 
you know, nothing he wanted to do. He wanted to work on cars. So go work on cars. He's going to make a lot more money. Over, oh, yeah. You know, um, so, you know, I think not everybody needs to go to college, but I think those that do should not be crucified for going by getting settled with $100,000 worth of debt to yeah. four years of college. No, I, I think I think you're right. There's a, I mean, I think the the there's an understandable uh, backlash of, of of people that didn't go to college. It's like, hey, why am I having to pay that? And I understand that, right? Um, but also, yeah, like the predatory system of the of the whole student loan stuff is, it's, it's is terrible. Off. Yeah, I've uh, I've, I've experienced. You know, I'm experiencing that myself, and I didn't. You know, I didn't get the the huge huge massive yeah. debt that a lot of, but it was. It's not not nothing. I mean, it was it was still fairly sizable, and it's uh, yeah, I I I don't know. It's it's uh, and the thing is, the, the jobs that were around mm-hmm. that could have paid for some of this stuff are gone. You know, they've been they just disappeared in places like Chicago, yep. Cleveland, Detroit. Yeah, and so you can't these these poor kids are caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. So, so I um got to be done. I I think I've been I've been reading a lot more into the, the labor movement stuff uh you know from from back in the coal miner and then mm-hmm. and then there's Chicago and and stuff and <laughs> I I'm I grew up not a not a union guy but we didn't have union jobs around. I mean like other than the the, the teachers union but I you know these are small schools it's not this is not like the city where they they go on you know the this teachers unions go on strike quite a bit and the union stuff is just kind of foreign to me mm-hmm. and because it just wasn't wasn't around much and and so i i guess i have the kind of the benefit of of looking at it from kind of a thirty thousand foot view and mm-hmm. and you look and i think boy they they really did a good job of establishing rights for the workers and and uh kind of keeping the these these giant corporations at bay but then at the same time they they kind of they drove up the price of labor and uh and eventually shifted stuff out of either out of uh to you know non-union friendly states well, or overseas and, and that's exactly what happened with meatpacking so what happened with you know so when wilson and company closed in i think what was it 1954 55 um Wilson was this big, huge meat packer in Chicago, and mm-hmm. uh, it, its plant covered maybe twenty, thirty acres. Uh, and they they closed up, and they said basically, you, you know, you got in, in in five weeks, we're gone. Yeah, and they laid all these guys off, men and women at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and where did they move? They moved to Oklahoma, which is a right to work state, and they killed yep. the union. Uh, and, uh, so a lot of these meatpacking houses, that's exactly what they did. They, they, they broke the unions by moving out of places like Chicago and St. Louis and, and, uh, you know, Omaha and Kansas city. And, um, and, you know, so, okay. So for them, it made, it, it was better at the bottom line, right? They didn't have to pay union wages. They didn't have to pay union benefits. But for the guys they left behind, I mean, one of the reasons I think, and, you know, I, I I could be wrong. My wife proves to me that I'm wrong just about all the time. Um, but a lot of the, the the slum conditions in Chicago are because these industries have moved out. Yeah. And they left behind guys with mortgages and 
you know, kids and paying for schools and, you know, some of us you send a lot of kids to Catholic schools here too, you know, mm-hmm. um, which used to be almost free, but now are not. Um, and, uh, and, and they, they just sort of, you know, kissed him and said goodbye. And that was it. Yep. And, um, and, and abandoned the neighborhoods. And so you see a lot of this, the, the collapse of this, of these inner cities because there's no industry, because there's no place to go. Now, Chicago's mm-hmm. lucky because it's still the second or third largest industrial center in the country. Mm-hmm. And it's got, it's a, it's because of the railroads, it's still one of the largest container ports in the country. You know, all the stuff mm-hmm. from LA and from New, New Jersey come to Chicago and we redistribute it. So there's mm-hmm. plenty, there's still work here, but, but the kinds of jobs that I was able to get as a kid, they're just not there. They're just not there. And so you see unemployment, you know, especially especially among, uh, let's say, Latino and, and, and African-American populations now that had a chance to give a good job in a packing house, decent paying job, benefits. They're now sweeping floors in empty warehouses or they're not working mm. at all. And then that, that's a problem because now they're paid minimum wage where before they had some chance to buy a house, maybe get a car and so forth. So it, 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 it's something that we all got to think about uh, how – and, and it, I, it's going to be more of a problem when all these robots do everything. Right? Uh, yeah, that that's gonna. Yeah, I can see uh, a, a real problem with that. You know, I mean, now they're talking yeah. about trucks that can be driven by computers, right? Yeah. Um, they start doing that. You know, well, of course, uh, I'll tell you what: a cattle truck will never be unloaded by a computer. <laughs> no, but I, uh, you know, they they tried one of those little robot. Uh, things in, a, in one of the feedlots to i think it was cargill that had it maybe and and it, it was like uh, a little tracked it was like kind of like an r2d2 looking mm-hmm. thing and it had uh two two flags that it would wave back and forth and then you see a video of it later on its side <laughs> a circle after some steer just blew it right over yeah, yeah. and it's like yeah um I, I don't think they're gonna get robots uh the working cattle there's not not for a long time yeah not not for and if once once they get a robot that can that can move like a human and and uh move cattle like a human then uh we're we're in a world of hurt right <laughs> more than anything yeah it's very different yeah yeah it's uh no it, it's pretty it's pretty incredible to see how in in a relatively short amount of time when we're talking when did the I guess the packing industry really started at around like 1860 or something in Chicago? Well, uh, so the big meat packing center was uh, Cincinnati before Chicago. Porkopolis. Yeah, and it, it moved sort of west and, and settled in Chicago and other places. So yeah, it really there's meat packing in Chicago from 1820 on, but where it mm. really begins to settle in is the late 1850s, early 1860s. Yeah. And then 1865, the stockyards was open, and then everything that and that that was that just centralized everything in it. Yeah, and and you know, so there had been there had been probably a half a dozen small stockyards in Chicago. Mm. So when a packing house needed, let's say they they, they had to slaughter a thousand cattle, they might have to go to three four places to get the cattle because these were small stockyards. So. The Pork Packers Association and the nine railroads came together. These were all, and by the way, the, the, they were all friends of Abraham Lincoln who ran these things. 
Uh, mm-hmm. They all came together and they formed a union stockyard, which had t- sort of two meanings, right? Union, because the Civil War had just ended, and but but yeah. it also was the un- uniting of all these stockyards, and yeah. so uh, that became a, an important uh, uh, an important uh, symbolic part of it. But yeah, once they once they came together, then uh, many of the packing houses, which had been a few miles away along the Chicago River, began to move ne- next to the stockyard because it was just easier. You didn't have to drive cattle. You know, you drive cattle on the hoof, they lose weight, they get hurt, they, they break a leg. Yeah. And if you drive them in the middle of a city, they get hit by a streetcar, you know. <laughs> um, so it, it became easier just to have them next to the stockyard. And then they built these ramps, which went over all the pens and over the railroad yards. So, And some of those ramps were three stories high. So you could have animals coming and going back and forth. Huh. Uh, and, and they drove them over to the stockyards. And then... They would kill the animals on the top floor of the peat packing houses, and then, oh, okay. And everything was taken by gravity down because there was no not electrification at the time. Yeah, and these were like like nine story packing houses. Oh yeah, they? I was at uh, I I used to when some of the packing houses were still uh, you know they were they were there but they were uh, sort of broken open, uh, and I you would roam into them would crawl up to the top and you could see the kill floors on the top floor. You know, mm. uh, and uh, and and the drains for the blood and everything. You know, uh, and so the animal basically made its way down to the hide rooms and the coolers. Huh, that's wild. Very mechanized, and you know, you pass a you pass an army of almost two hundred men and women before the animal hit the uh, hit hit the freezer room or the cooler room. You know. Yeah, and, and it was it was I don't remember. I mean, the old, the old story uh, that, you know, um, Henry Ford got his idea for the assembly line from the disassembly line, right. watching the packing house yeah. work. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, like, incredible innovation. And it, it was all, it all, it was all market driven, too. It right. was, uh, that, that, that was the crazy thing, is it was uh, the, the well, people in the East wanted meat. And uh, well, you know that's an interesting story because the railroads, yeah, they liked bringing live cattle, mm-hmm. because you, you you charge more. Yep, because you it's their blood, the horns, they it, it's all you know by by weight. And when the stockyards started creating these refrigerated cars, they didn't want to carry them, so the Grand Trunk Railroad from Canada said, "Well, we'll carry them." So they took the beeves out of Chicago. Went up into Canada, came down around all the way down to Boston, Philadelphia, New York, and sold the meat. <laughs> so you know there was a big stockyard actually in in Manhattan, the meatpacking. Yeah, place. there was a big stockyard there. They were you know in competition with this. So a lot of the local butchers in New York said, "Well, we're not going to sell it. It's embalmed beef. It's not good for you. Don't don't eat it." So Swift said, "Okay, well you know what do you sell your meat for? You sell it for ten cents a pound. I'll sell it for nine. You sell it for nine, I'll sell it for eight. You sell it for eight, I'll sell it for six cents. Mm. Or what? I'll give it away free. And before you know it, New York was buying Chicago meat. And they did the same thing on the West Coast in the San Francisco area. So they just put local butchers out of business. I mean, this was a pretty uh, aggressive industry. That's why there's always just four or five big packers because these big you know, economies of scale can overwhelm small companies. Now, today, mm-hmm. there's some small meat packers all over the, you know, the countryside in Wisconsin, Iowa, Montana. But 
to, to compete on a global scale like these guys did. Uh, and, and they were ruthless. They would, you know, okay, you, you want to charge two cents a pound? I'll give it away. Let's see whose meat they buy. Yeah. And they put, put these people out of business. And in fact, that's what they ended up doing with the, with the livestock market also with direct buying. Yeah. Well, and they, uh, and they also did a lot of, a uh, lot of lobbying. And, and so oh. when they, when they, when they saw all these, like the, Pure Food Act and, uh, and the Meat Inspection Act and all these different laws coming down the pipe, you bet you they were in the pocket of their 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 senators and and congressmen to make sure that those those regulations, uh, whatever they may be, may be, they were they were tailored to where at least they could, if nothing else, they could they could push smaller guys out. Right. Well, but first of all, so the big businesses are not so opposed to these reforms. No. Because they can handle it financially. Yep. But, you know, the Dominic Pasiga packing house can't. And so yep. it put me out of business. Uh, and, yep. and, and and so that was actually part of the re response to this. Now, I mean, the Pre-Food and Drug Act, those those were pushed through by, you know, people like Teddy Roosevelt. Um, mm. You know, and, and you know, uh, Upton Sinclair and Teddy Roosevelt said Upton Sinclair um, exaggerated, lied, you know, in the book uh, The Jungle. But but he was a good tool for Teddy Roosevelt yeah. because it was a, a, a public relations thing. He said, "Well, look, mm -hmm. terrible meat. All these people get sick from meat in Chicago. Why? Because there's not this, you know, uh, inspection and control." And, and it was good for the industry. Now, what's happened, of course, is that a lot of this inspection has now disappeared because the government no longer funds it, and so yeah. we've got other problems now. And now this this new revelation where all these kids. That mostly are, are Latino and Asian refugees, right? Are, yep. work, are working in these meatpacking plants. Um, it's like going back to 1906. Mm -hmm. no, I mean, well, and then you have, uh, and all these regulations are kind of based on these these bigger packing plants. Mm -hmm. So when you have like a local mom and pop that say wants to sell, like say they're right on the line of uh, Colorado and Kansas, and mm -hmm. you got a family in Kansas that wants to sell their meat in Colorado. Well, now you have to have a USDA inspector for that. Sure. Right. And uh, because it's interstate commerce, but guess what? There's only a handful of USDA inspectors and they're right. all at these giant packing houses. Right. Right. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's kind of the trap of, of regulation. Where is it? Is it good? I, yes, I think it is mm -hmm. uh, to have these standards in place, but to have them, the regulation also pushes out these smaller, smaller. Uh... Yeah, and you know, you, of course, you you also want to be safe when you eat meat. You don't want something like yeah. with maggots in it. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly right. And so you know, it's 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 a line you have to walk. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that uh, I don't know. I think uh, uh, in, in a lot of ways, in the last twenty, thirty, forty years, we dropped the ball on a lot of this stuff. Uh, maybe we've got too used to it and um, and just didn't, you know, keep it up. And But, you know, I think we need to, uh, as, a, as a country as a whole, I think we need to rethink what we're doing and where we're going. Um, and, and you and I may disagree on where that should be, but we can work something out in the middle, you know. Right. Well, and I, uh, like I said, I, I 
I, I didn't grow up in these these like union types uh, areas, and so I, I don't I don't understand that world very much. But I do know that I love America. Like I love this country a lot. I think we're we're like light years above any other country on earth on 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 the greatness of it. I and I like there's and that's not as a, a term of disrespect to any anybody else in the world. I just think I, I think uh, history kind of proves it. Like we've got something really 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 fucking special here if we can and, uh, to it yeah <laughs> right and that means like i gotta i gotta know something about the people that are, are butchering that that steer that i'm taking care of you know to get there mm-hmm. and, and and the people that are eating that and like we've all got to kind of come to some sort of common understanding that like hey let's and a lot of it is like hey don't tell me how to do my job as long as my job ain't, isn't an interfering on yours. You sure. know, like let me do my mine, you do yours, and we can all we can all have a beer after work. Sure. And uh, <laughs> but I uh, the, these corporations are, I mean that that's one thing where I, I really think the left wing people have have always kind of been spot on. Is these these giant corporations are. If not, not I don't think they're necessarily evil. I just think they they be when they come big enough and they're publicly traded and whatnot. There's no, there's no one guy that you can that well, you can lean on to to be like, hey, change your change your ways. Yeah, I think that that's really true, and you know, it's also so you know the McCormick Reaper works, which became International Harvester. And mm-hmm. So when McCormick. Uh, built this in Chicago, you know, and the, the first Reapers came out of Chicago. Uh, he, uh, he worked right on the line with his men. He knew them all by name. He knew their mothers. He knew their mm-hmm. wives. He knew their, their kids' names, you know. Well, by the time it became a big corporation, nobody knew anybody. Yeah. You know, and, and it became ruthless in many kinds of ways. Not that the original McCormick wasn't ruthless. I'm sure he was in his own way. But, oh, yeah. But 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 the fact is that he, you know uh, so you you knew John and John John got sick so all right you'll hold his job for you rather than you know because he's a good worker yeah now if you work in a company that's got a hundred thousand people working for him you don't know who's a good worker who's a bad worker you just know who somebody's getting in the way right yeah and so uh, that 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 anonymousness that that we've created through mass these mass societies. Is, has caused issues, has caused problems. I, I mean, there's a benefit to it too. The reapers are, would be cheaper if they were, mm-hmm. not, you know, and then the food is cheaper. You know, we and everybody wants cheap, right? I mean, even yep. with inflation today, we really shouldn't complain too much because inflation in other countries is tr- much higher, you know. But yeah, but it, it's still it's bothersome. It's it's worrisome. You know, you you want the cheapest, you pay the cheapest, and and make the most you can. That's how mm-hmm. how American culture, all cultures to think um but uh, it, there does become this kind of well you, you know even if you look in, in neighborhoods like i grew up there were a lot of mom and pop grocery stores mm-hmm. they're all gone they're all yeah. you know there were a lot of mom and pop butcher shops bakery stores you i mean i i could walk to four bakers from my house every small town main street too yeah same way. And, and now they're walmart comes in and they're all gone and then when mm-hmm. Walmart decides it doesn't make enough money, it pulls out. They just pulled four, yep. four stores out of Chicago. Uh, and, yeah. And neighbors, well, where are we going to shop? Well, where are you going to shop? Not my problem, you know. Um, and so uh, it, it's, it's, 
it's 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 a balance between individualism and communalism. Uh, yeah. Caring about community or just caring about myself, you know. Right. And uh, and and sometimes and 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 sometimes either one of them gets skewered out of the way, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, like we're we're built on a a community of individuals that that threw off a, a monarchy, you know. Right. It was uh, and 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 then even then, from like you take your family there. Uh, I don't know what what your your family story is, but they came from Poland. I don't know if they were fleeing or just looking for a better opportunity. But I'm looking for a better opportunity, right. and and so you you have uh, a group of individuals that find found people like them because mm-hmm. they, it was a brand new world, mm-hmm. you know. And so you have you have individuals that are brave enough to come over here and and try to find something and make something. Um, but in the meantime, you got to have you got to have people that you know, yeah. uh, or at least that are, that, that you can talk to. Sure. And, and it's, yeah, I, I think there's, uh, I think individual liberty, uh, is, is the part that we, uh, as a country, particularly on the conservative side, they always, and, and libertarian, I'm more of a, on the libertarian type of mm-hmm. persuasion. And, and we, we focus on individual liberty, but not nearly enough on individual responsibility. Like well, you have responsibility to to take care of 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 uh, people that are that are they're within your orbit. You know. Sure, you you have a responsibility to your neighbors. You don't want to put a cesspool in your backyard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, well, and that no. that uh that old Robert Frost, you know, good fences make good neighbors. It's right. uh, it, it's something so profound about that. It's like um a good fence between you and your neighbor is a good thing, but you still got to have like, when you come from that part of the world where, where you, uh, a good fence means like your cattle ain't in with the neighbor cattle, but it's not necessarily because you don't, uh, it's, it's keeping your, your business separate, but you got to be able to help each other out when, when, uh, you know, disaster strikes. And that's, that's one of the beauties of, of like rural communities is when you get a big, weather event you know whether it's a blizzard or a flood or whatever like people band together and uh and and help each other out because you, you always want when, when something bad happens to you you want to hope that your neighbor will be there to to give you a hand sure sure and and i don't know it's just uh that that's the the individual responsibility is a lot left out a lot when people are talking about you know the liberty part of things. And I, I, I believe in individual liberty, uh, you know, kind of almost above all, but liberty comes with responsibility. Absolutely. That's why I always say freedom isn't free. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think a lot of people have lost sight of that. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, so I, it's, um, I don't know. It, it's always good. You know, when, when you see like a company doing, something good to give back to to the community like i'll i'll support them i don't care if they're you know that they're bigger a bigger outfit if they're helping sure helping the community around them that's that's a good thing and um like the the people i work for the company i work for like they give they donate like a lot of beef to you know the ffa kids are putting on a fundraiser or something we'll, we'll donate the beef to that sure. why not help them out you know one of those kids might come work for us sure yeah and and it's uh it's it's a self-interested thing but it's the right thing to do as well sure absolutely and uh so i i think i think you're right that there's there 
there's something about a strong community that's i mean that's that that used to be what 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 the like i said the waves of 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 history through the u.s there's strife and then everybody kind of gets along and when everybody gets along man we do some really cool stuff right put a man in the moon (laughs) yeah yeah exactly you know i mean that they they built the the transatlantic railroad Mm -hmm. which uh allowed allowed and it gave it gave you know guys that had just been fighting each other it gave them a place to go yeah and 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 do something because once once the war was over a lot of those you know a lot of the northern guys went back up to their jobs uh or in their homes and their farms but all those southern guys they just had nothing left to go back to Mm -hmm. like nothing nothing at all and they went west uh the the freed slaves all of a sudden they're just kind of there yeah (laughs) What, what do we do now and uh all they know how to do is work. So, uh, well, let's go find work. And, and the, these railroads, these packing houses, it it gave it gave a, a lot of disenfranchised men something to do, and uh, it gave them a, another purpose in life. And that it, it uh, and it create strong communities. I mean, the, it it really yeah really helped make America great. You know, just like the. Oh, it's fascinating. I love I love that history period post World War uh or Civil War, the the you know, the Great Western expansion. It's just a it's such a fascinating period in time where it just it's kinda like the I guess it's 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 the race to, to the modern age almost. Yeah, and I think that that's that's where the stockyards come in too. I mean they create the modern age in many ways. Mm-hmm. You know, and the railroads and the technology that emerges. Yeah. yeah, it's it's fascinating. I uh, I don't know. I anyways, I I guess kind of to wrap it all up. I hate to take too much more of your time, um, but that you kind of told that story of of Chicago with the Union Stockyards and in, in in your book Slaughterhouse, uh, in a way that I haven't I hadn't heard told uh quite before. You know, you had the I've read the the jungle several different times, you know, starting in high school, and then I reread it, uh, doing some research for this this project, and and then I'm reading like, <laughs> do you do you know the name Roger uh, Scheel? I think is his last S H I E L. He was a a commission guy from from uh, Indianapolis, mm-hmm. and he was he was one of the biggest movers of of cattle, and he he wrote a I just read uh it was kind of a rambling set of letters and mm-hmm. I don't know but he he was kind of railing against the beef trust and then there's a a butcher that wrote a, you know a treatise on the beef trust mm-hmm. or the dark side of the beef trust or something like that and and it's a lot of just muckraking and, and yours just told the story of how it how it all happened rather than trying to point fingers and I I it was a it's a good story and there's no like I think a lot of people get involved with uh, trying to push a bias or an agenda, but rather than just tell the damn story. And I think that's what you, well, thank what you. you managed to do with Slaughterhouse. And I, I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, so I, I appreciate this uh, conversation. I'd love to have you back on again, uh, yeah. the further I get into this uh, research um, and, and kind of kick some ideas back and forth with you. And, I, I I'm 
I'm trying to figure out a time I can get to Chicago because I'm going to take you up on on that offer. Well, you, you you got my email and got my phone number. Give me a ring. Yes, sir. Well, right. uh, Dominic, I appreciate your time. It's been, you. been a really good chat. And uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And, uh, yeah, move your ass. We're burning daylight. Oh, out of Southern Illinois, I'm a down-home country boy. He's going to make it in the city, playing guitar in the studio. Oh, well, it hadn't been there an hour When he met a Broadway flower You know she took him for his money And she left him in a cheap hotel Oh, well, it's easy for you to see That that country boy is me I see, and how am I gonna help Break the news to the folks back home Well, I was gonna be a great success Things sure ended up a mess but in the process, I got messed up too But hello, mama and dad, I had to call collect Cause I ain't got a cent to my name But I'm sleeping in the hotel doorway And tonight they say it's gonna rain And if you'd only send me some money well, I'll be back on my feet again Send it in care of the Sunday mission box number 10 Well, back in southern Illinois They're still worrying about their boy But this boy's going home soon as he gets the fare Because as soon as I got my bread I got a pipe upside my head You know they left me in an alley Took my money and my guitar too but Hello mama and dad I had to call collect Cause I ain't got a cent to my name well, I'm sleeping in the hotel doorway And tonight they say it's gonna rain And if you'd only send me some money I'll be back on my feet again Send it in care of the Sunday Mission Box number 10